morning. This is our last week of our psalm survey. So if you want to open up in your Bibles to Psalm 145, Psalm 145, which I will read as our opening and as our prayer, as it were, to begin. So Psalm 145, Psalm of Praise of David, I will extol Thee, my God, O King, and I will bless Thy name forever and ever. Every day I will bless Thee, and I will praise Thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise Thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts on the glorious splendor of thy majesty and on thy wonderful works I will meditate and men shall speak of the power of thine awesome acts and I will tell of thy greatness they shall eagerly utter the memory of thine abundant goodness and shall shout joyfully of thy righteousness the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all of His works. All thy works shall give thanks to thee, O God, and thy godly ones shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power, to make known to the sons of men thy mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of thy kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to thee, and thou dost give them their food in due time. Let us open thy hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So here we are, Psalm 145, towards the end of book 5. As each of our previous weeks in the survey, we've been looking at two psalms, in each of these five books of the Psalter. And so here we are at the end. And originally my plan was to be to survey, um, as we have been, two psalms each week. So we were going to look at Psalm 145 in a bit of detail, but also Psalm um, 137. But as it turned out, uh, the more that I studied and read, I realized that really we needed to spend the entire time on 137. And you'll see why as we go. Uh, But a few, uh, I guess, um, a few comments about Book 5 in general. Uh, The introduction I gave last week to Book 4 and Book 5 basically stands for today. But there are a couple of noteworthy features about Book 5. First of all, you really can't um, talk about the Psalms, perhaps, without saying at least something about um, perhaps the longest and grandest of the Psalms, Psalm 119, which is in Book 5. And as it clocks in at 176 verses... It's the longest chapter in the Bible, although, of course, it's not a chapter. The Psalms don't have chapters. They have Psalms, 
But still, it's very long, and in fact, I, I heard or read somewhere that when Ligon Duncan was preaching through the Psalms on Sunday evenings at his church in Jackson, Mississippi, it took him six months to preach through Psalm 119. So there's a lot you could dig into, but we're not able to do it um, today. But really, it's worth also saying that the theme of that psalm, so again, that longest psalm, the theme is really meditations and prayers on God's law. And that tells us something about the importance of law. One more notable feature um, of book five is that in the way that book one had this kind of introduction or the front door of the Psalms, as I described it in Psalm one and Psalm two, that kind of opened up for us many of the themes that we would see in the Psalms. So it seems that uh, at the end of book five, we have a conclusion or an epilogue. And that a number of Psalms scholars think that this Psalm we just read, 145, is kind of the end of the Psalms, as it were, and then Psalms 146 through 150 are kind of this exclamation point, this epilogue or conclusion that kind of puts, re-emphasizes everything that we've seen thus far, and those five shorter Psalms bring the book to this powerful concluding crescendo of praise. So, What's our task today? Well, our task, like I said, is to really consider a psalm type that we've really only uh, briefly mentioned or alluded to in this series, and that's um, an imprecatory psalm. Now, throughout the series, we've seen psalms of praise, psalms of confession, psalms of lament. We've seen wisdom psalms and psalms of Zion, lots of different types of psalms, but we haven't really closely considered an imprecatory psalm, and so I think we should do that. Since book 5 gives us a very challenging example with 137, that's what we're going to do today. So, what is an imprecatory psalm? Well, it comes from the Latin imprecari, which means to invoke harm or to curse someone. But it immediately needs to be said that there are some problems with that definition. Uh, First of all, Uh, Whenever we read this kind of imprecatory language in the Psalms, and we'll read a few examples in a few minutes, um, you have to realize that in every case, the psalmist is not directly invoking a curse on his enemy. He's not directly speaking to his enemy to try to cause harm to come to them. But in every case, he's calling on God. He's speaking to God, asking God to bring about justice or to bring about vengeance on the psalmist's behalf. So that's one thing that's a bit misleading about calling it an imprecatory psalm. But secondly, uh, it's kind of also misleading because there really isn't any psalm that the entirety of the psalm is uh, made up of this kind of cursing or uh, vengeful language. It really only exists in very small parts of a relatively few number of psalms. The cry for vengeance might only be one or two verses long, or even if it is five to ten verses long, um, that kind of language still exists alongside um, some, of the, some of our favorite language in the Psalms might be found just a few verses away from this kind of vengeful language. So there's really no such thing as a psalm that's entirely imprecatory. So... Even though the the term perhaps isn't the best one, 
It's been around for a long time. It's not going anywhere, so we continue to use it. So then you might ask the question, well, how much of this is there in the Psalms? Well, like I said, it's very much a minority of what we see in the Psalms. Um, In some ways, it depends on who you ask. Psalm scholars can be very particular when it comes to slicing and dicing the language and trying to classify what actually is or what actually meets the criteria of this kind of vengeful language. But it seems, best as I can tell, that this kind of thing occurs really in maybe a dozen psalms, maybe upwards of 20. Uh, Other people might put the count higher. But again, no matter who is counting, we have to remember um, that it is infrequent. It's relatively uncommon compared to all of the other kind of language that we see in the psalms. But before we dive right into Psalm 137, let's look at just a few other examples. You may or may not be familiar with these things. Probably none of you would use them in your devotional time this morning. Um, So turn back, first of all, to Psalm 58, and we'll look at a few examples. Psalm 58, and I will just read verses 6 through 9 of that psalm. And again, I'm not trying to set up the context for these. We will very much get into the context of 137, but I just want us to get a feel for what we're talking about. So Psalm 58, verses 6 through 9, where David writes, O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. So the language can be shocking. And I think it's okay for us to think that the language is shocking. But again, realize that what David is doing here, he's not directly addressing his enemy. He's addressing God. He makes that clear in verse 6. He is saying these things to God, and he's saying, let this, let there, wanting God to take action. David is not seeking to do anything himself. He's asking for God to do something. Now turn over to Psalm 69 where we will read verses 22 through 28. Again, I believe this is David. Yes, David says, verse 22, May their table become, before them become a snare, and where they are in peace may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out thine indignation on them, And may thy burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom thou thyself hast smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom thou hast wounded. Do thou add iniquity to their iniquity. And may they not come into thy righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. Again, very serious, shocking language that David is using. But again, notice that he is addressing God. He is asking that may this happen, may this happen. And the only way that these things might happen 
David is not making any guarantee that these things will happen. But if they were to happen, it would have to be God who does this. One more example, Psalm 109. I'll read verses 7 through 15. Where again, this is David, and he says this. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg, and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and a following generation let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be uh, content before the Lord continually, that they may cut off their memory from the earth. So again, we're seeing the similar kind of pattern. David is again addressing God, asking for let this happen, let this happen. The only way for those things to happen were to be if God were to answer David's prayer. Now, I realize this is difficult stuff, but turn over to Psalm 137 where it's not going to get any easier. I'll read the whole psalm. Um, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May, the tongue cle- my, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with a recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So, let's first think about the context. The context of this perhaps should be clear. We've seen this context before. The psalmist is talking about the experience of the captivity in Babylon. Um, He's lamenting the plight of God's people in Babylon. And notice that in verses 1 through 3, the pronouns are plural. He's saying we, us, our So this is the collective experience of God's people in Babylon. This is not an isolated incident, I don't think. This is not something that just happened to one person. But this is the collective experience of the people of God during this time in their history. And what are they doing? Well, the first thing says that they're sitting and they're weeping. And it says they're sitting next to the rivers of Babylon. Well, we might realize that um, Babylon was centered in the place that is now modern-day Iraq. The two rivers that flow through that area of the world are the Tigris and the Euphrates. And these were the main water sources for Babylon. 
And in fact, the Babylonians had built a number of canals connecting these rivers to bring water where it needed to go for irrigation or for their settlements. And so it's next to these watercourses that the Israelites are sitting. And we should remember, of course, that a posture of sitting is a posture of mourning. And of course, they're not only sitting, they're also weeping. And so what are they mourning? Well, it could have been any number of things, obviously, but... The psalm seems to tell us in verse 1 that they are mourning, it says, when we remembered Zion. That is, they were thinking about their home, the promised land, the land of Judah and Jerusalem, which, of course, they had been forcibly removed from and had subsequently been destroyed, burned, and plundered by the Babylonians. It may be helpful to think back to Psalm 48, which we saw a few weeks ago, which was a psalm of Zion. And in that case, the psalmist described um, the city of Jerusalem as the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And the thrust of that psalm, if you recall, was not simply about the architectural beauty or splendor of the city, its towers and ramparts and the palace and the temple, but really the wonderful thing about Zion and Jerusalem was the fact that that's where God dwelled with his people. But now, of course, in this context, in this psalm, all of that is over. Jerusalem has been sacked and destroyed. They've been taken away from their home. And, of course, it doesn't mean that God's people forgot or just wanted to move on with their lives. No, they remembered acutely what life was like in Zion, and they wanted desperately to return. And so it's not surprising that we find them sitting and weeping as they remember this. The next thing they do is they hang their harps in the willow trees or the poplar trees, depending on the translation. And you may wonder, why do they hang their harps in the trees? Well, it says uh, in verse 4, they're kind of asking this rhetorical question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And it also says that their tormentors or their captors were telling them to sing. So they were demanding songs of us. And I don't think it was because their Babylonian overlords enjoyed the music or wanted to sing along with them. I think the context suggests um, that their tormentors or captors wanted to make sport of God's people, or really to make sport of God himself. So that as they're asking them to sing these songs of Zion, I think really what the captors are saying is we know that you Israelites are famous for your songs, for your psalms. And we know that those psalms are known for declaring the faithfulness of your God. So why don't you sing some of those songs for us right now? I would love to hear about you singing the faithfulness of your God right now. Because it looks like that God has abandoned you. And so perhaps it's not surprising to see them say, No, we're not going to sing for you. We're hanging our harps in the trees. It won't even be possible for us to sing for you. Now, we should realize that the experience in captivity, it wasn't as if the Israelites were in jail. They weren't imprisoned in Babylon. Their, their families were able to live in some degree of freedom moving about the cities and the countryside throughout Babylon, but realize that they were still under the thumb of this pagan nation. They were under the thumb of this foreign land that was clearly the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. 
And that becomes clearer in verses 7 through 9. But in verses uh, 5 and 6, I think it simply heightens for us the extent to which the Israelites loved their homeland and desperately wanted to return. Because in these two verses, it appears that the psalmist is talking about some sort of curses, but they're being applied to themselves. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. It appears um, that they are so determined to not forget Zion. That if the possibility existed that if they did forget, well then I want my right hand to not be able to even work and I want my tongue to cleave to the roof of my mouth. And you may wonder, why these curses? Why are they saying that these are the things that should happen? Well, I think it has to do with the singing. That if they forget about Zion, then we don't even want to be able to play our harps. We don't even want to be able to sing because our tongue is cleaving to the roof of our mouth. I think, again, this simply heightens the degree to which they long to return and dare not forget God's goodness in Zion. And then we come to verses 7 through 9, and we realize that as pitiful as their plight appears to be here, as they're sitting and weeping and lamenting, we realize that actually a far greater evil was committed against them by Babylon than what verses 1 through 6 may even indicate. So again, verse 7 through 9, I'll read it again. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. So two nations are actually mentioned here, Edom in verse 7 and Babylon in verse 8. We might know that the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, and as a nation, they were a relatively minor power, but um, they, of course, bitter hostilities existed between the Edomites and the people of God, not unlike the way that hostilities existed between Esau and his brother Jacob. A number of God's prophets addressed these people of Edom, including uh, the little um, prophetic word by Obadiah, his little letter, the entire little letter is focused towards Edom. But in this context, we just need to know that Edom was a help to Babylon. When Babylon came in to lay siege to Jerusalem, the people of Edom, the armies of Edom were there to help Babylon. Edom was known for its actions in looting the city, killing the residents who attempted to escape. But we also know that Babylon was the chief actor in all of this. That I think is really the thrust of what the psalmist is saying that Babylon was the one that has done these wicked things. Let me just briefly read an account, just a few verses from 2 Kings chapter 25, where it just gives us kind of the account of what happened. Uh, 2 Kings 25, verses 8 through 11. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. 
and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. So that's recorded for us to understand what happened at that particular time, although other scriptures refer to much more violent actions that were taken by Babylon, particularly in um, the Lamentations. Um, we see that um, particularly violent things were done in the midst of that siege and pillaging of Jerusalem. And so we should understand that whatever the psalmist is asking for here, he's asking for retribution. He's saying, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense which you have repaid us. He's asking that whatever it is that Babylon has done to us, we want to see done to you. Now, so then should we understand that as a part of the sacking and pillaging of Jerusalem, are we to understand that the invading armies of Babylon and Edom took Israelite infants away from their mothers and dashed their heads against the rock, the ground, or a wall? Well, I think, yes, that is what we're to understand. Derek Kidner writes that this sort of thing was a common sequel to heathen victory. It's violence like this is also referred to in 2 Kings chapter 8, as well as in the prophets Hosea and Nahum. And of course, we shouldn't be so naive to think that this practice was only an ancient one. There are historical accounts of those that were witness to the same kind of atrocities perpetrated by the Nazis against Jewish babies and children during World War II. But the key, of course, again, is that the psalmist is seeking retribution. He's addressing the Lord in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, these things, and the psalmist is asking that justice be done. Now, at some level, we can understand that, perhaps. Although I dare say hardly any of us have had a great evil perpetrated against us personally. Maybe some of you have. I don't think I have. But at some level, we can understand, perhaps, that the psalmist is wanting justice to be done. But even if we do understand that, I don't think that comes close to solving the problem that the imprecatory psalmists present to us. So, or I should say, especially given the fact that our charge throughout this survey has been to, to try to understand how can we use the psalms, how can we pray the psalms, how can we sing the psalms, as we've also investigated the notion throughout the survey that Jesus is the sum and substance of the psalms, can we understand in some way that Jesus can lead us even in singing or praying a psalm like this? Well, we need to think about this very carefully. And of course, this problem is highlighted because of some very clear teaching in the New Testament. I think through on the bottom of your handout, I will read a little bit longer excerpts from Romans 12 and Matthew 5, where Paul writes this in Romans. These are familiar to you, I realize. He says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then these familiar words from the Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, what are we to do? 
in light of what Jesus says, in light of what Paul says, and in other places in the New Testament, what do we do with these psalms? It seems obvious that whatever the psalmists are saying are not in accord with what Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, there's a couple of options to solve the problem. The most common way that psalm scholars attempt to solve this problem um, is to say that in light of what Jesus has said and in light of what Paul has said in the New Testament, then the imprecatory language in the psalms is off-limits for the Christian. Full stop. Here's a few examples, and these are well-known, very respectable people. Um, Peter Craigie, psalm scholar, says these words, talking about these imprecations, quote, they're often natural and spontaneous, but they're not always pure and good, end quote. Elsewhere, Craigie says that, in fact, these sentiments are evil. Derek Kidner, who wonderful commentaries on the psalms, says, quote, can a Christian use these cries of vengeance as his own? The short answer must surely be no, end quote. So that's very clear in his mind. And then here's another person that's written on the Psalms, not that he's a Psalms expert, but C.S. Lewis was even more forceful. He says, um, quote, that these imprecations are profoundly wrong and that we should be wicked if we in any way approved or condoned these prayers. And then some have gone even further and said that even not just the imprecations, but a whole lot of other portions of the Psalms are also off limits to the Christian today. A well-known 18th century divine said this, and I'm not going to identify him just yet. Just think about what he's saying. He says, quote, There are a thousand lines in the Psalms which are not made for the church in our day to assume as its own. He says the Psalms flatten devotion, awaken regret, and touch all the springs of uneasiness. And then he says, I would rejoice to see David converted to a Christian, end quote. Now, as we think about, who might have said that? Because you realize David was a Christian, right? As much as you and I are. It's fascinating to me to think, who said that? Well, it was actually written in the introduction of a hymnal written by Isaac Watts. Those are Watts' words. Now, how in the world could Watts have been so opposed to using the Psalms in the church? Well, this is not a referendum on Watts. We love Watts' hymns. But still, I think that kind of idea explains to us the reason why a lot of people are uncomfortable with these kind of things in the Psalms. And so they say we can't safely use them. We need to set them aside for a number of reasons. Um, and I think aside from the idea that um, he thinks that David needs to be converted to a Christian, I mean, there's a profound theological misunderstanding there. But I think behind that kind of idea is the idea that the Old Testament teaches a lesser morality than the New Testament. Or that even certain parts of the Old Testament, when you compare it to the New Testament, it appears, perhaps, that parts of the Old Testament are even less than Christian, or even unchristian. So that gives rise, I think, to this idea that we need to stay away from these imprecatory psalms. But is there another approach to solve the problem? I mean, that is one solution, to say that they're off limits, they're evil, they're not for us. Well, I want to lead us through another solution that's a more difficult one. There's eight points on your handout. 
And I'm not giving us this solution because I think it's a novel one or because it's a risky one. I'm actually following um, what Christopher Ash is writing about these things. And I think that he's taking seriously all of the Scripture and is giving us a very sound biblical way to approach this problem. And so here we go. We'll see if I have time for these eight points. Some of them are brief. Some of them are longer. But we're going to start with a presupposition or a premise, and I think it's an important one, is that whatever solution we, were, we arrive at regarding the imprecatory psalms, we can't drive a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can't do that. Because really, the morality and ethic of the New Testament is firmly grounded in the morality and ethic of the Old Testament. When Paul wrote in Romans 12 that we should not take our own revenge, he was basing his argument on what he read in Deuteronomy 32 and in Proverbs 25. He wasn't being original. He was saying, saying basically what he had already seen in the Old Testament. In 1 Peter 3, when Peter writes, do not return evil for evil, that's actually grounded in the Psalms, in Psalm 34, where David says, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And thinking about David just personally, he wasn't one who was given to taking personal revenge. When he had the opportunity to avenge himself against Saul in 1 Samuel 24, he refused to do so. And what did he say? He said, vengeance belongs to God. And so we're not surprised to find that the New Testament is actually following David in its teaching on opposing personal revenge. But then, that being the case, we might forget that there's actually some places that curses exist in the New Testament. Here's a couple of examples from Paul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed. What? That's kind of surprising. We might have expected Paul to say, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him repent and believe, right? But that's not what Paul said. Galatians 1.8, Paul writes, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Again, he's talking about false teachers, saying that they should be cursed. And then, at least on one occasion, Paul was comfortable suggesting that one of his enemies should not receive grace from God, but justice. 1 Timothy 4, 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And finally, think about Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's a common misconception that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is giving his teaching in contrast to what the Old Testament was saying. Because he introduces a lot of his statements with, you have heard it said, but I say. But that is not what Jesus is doing. When, he, when Jesus, throughout the Gospels, introduces what the Old Testament says, he always says, as it is written. So in this sermon, when he says, you've heard it said... In every case, Jesus is talking about the distortions of the Old Testament that the Pharisees were saying. So you've heard the Pharisees say this, but they're actually wrong in their understanding of the Old Testament. And then Jesus goes to correct their wrong understanding, and the teaching that he does give is perfectly in line with everything that the Old Testament says. So I think we're on safe ground to say that the ethical teaching in general of the Old Testament and even in the Psalms, even where it's difficult, 
The ethical teaching is in perfect accord between the Old and New Testaments. It's consistent. So I don't think we can drive this wedge in between and say, well, that was the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We need to realize that, yes, there are differences, but in this regard, I think there's continuity. Secondly, the imprecations are inseparable from the rest of the Psalms. Now, this is a logical argument. It's not an exegetical one. But I think it's worth asking the question that if God were to give his people a hymn book, which he has done, was God simply hoping that his people would know which verses to strike out? I don't think so. Number three, the imprecations are prayers, not curses. I think I've already said this at least twice, um, but we need to remember this, that the psalmists are not directly cursing anyone. They're asking God, praying to God, that God would vindicate them and that God would bring about justice. And we should realize in this regard, number four, that these prayers are actually prayers that God would do what he has already promised to do in covenant. And this way, Christopher Ashe says these imprecations are, quote, completely unoriginal, end quote. Because remember, when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, what was it that God said? One of the things he said um, was, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. We have to realize that all of God's covenants, they're like a two-edged sword. They have promises of blessing for those who obey and believe. They have promises of judgment and a curse for those who fail to believe and fail to obey. And that's not just the Old Testament covenants either. The New Covenant is the same way. Because every time the gospel is rightly preached, it also contains a promise of judgment, of curse. That is, you, in your sin, rightly deserve God's judgment and curse. But of course, it contains a promise of blessing. That if you would turn from your sin, then God would hear you and you can repent and be saved. And thinking about this kind of two-sided aspect of God's covenants, uh, this was illustrated in a very public way in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God had um, certain leaders of the tribes, along with the Levites, go up on top of two different mountaintops. From Mount Gerizim, they were to proclaim the blessings of the covenant. And then from Mount Ebal, they were to proclaim the curses of the covenant. This is so everyone could hear it. And it would be clear to everyone that there's both promises of blessing and curse. Now, Think again about Psalm 137 specifically. I think we have reason to believe that the psalmist wasn't praying in a vacuum. During the captivity, he would have had available to him probably writings of some of the prophets. And I think we have reason to believe, based on what he is writing in Psalm 137, that he probably had Isaiah available to him, the prophecy that Isaiah had written. Because we find in Isaiah chapter 13... If you want to turn there, you can, Isaiah 13. Um, Isaiah is prophesying the future judgment that would come to Babylon. This was something that hadn't yet happened, but he's prophesying what was going to happen. So Isaiah 13, I'll just read verses 15 and 16. This is what Isaiah says regarding Babylon. Anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. 
Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Now again, those are shocking words that are kind of arresting. But in this case, those words aren't coming from the psalmist. They're coming from Isaiah, which of course had received this prophetic word from God. So I think that when the psalmist is using this very disturbing language at the end of Psalm 137, he's really only praying that God would actually do what God had already promised to do. And in this regard, Christopher Ashe says, quote, to pray for God to do what he has said he will do is very different from taking the law into our own hands and seeking to exact revenge on our enemies, end quote. And in that regard, number five, we have to remember that these prayers are against God's enemies. In every case, whether it's David writing about a particular enemy that's trying to seek him and do harm to him, or when it's another psalmist writing perhaps about a collective people like Babylon seeking to do harm to God's people, we have to realize that in that case, the psalmist's enemy was also God's enemy. They were one and the same. And so the enemy's hostility that was directed towards the psalmist was ultimately hostility that was directed towards God. The psalmist realizes this that God was the object of their enemies' hatred and evil deeds. And I think we actually see this illustrated in the New Testament when you think about what we see on the Damascus Road. You've heard this before when Saul is going there and Jesus arrests him and stops him. We know that Saul had been persecuting the church, right? Persecuting the people of God. And yet the question that Jesus asked Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? We should understand that whenever the church, whenever the people of God is persecuted, God himself is the object of that persecution. And then number six, conversion is a possible way that these prayers might be answered. I think we should understand the conditional nature of the psalmist's imprecations. Because I think contained within their prayers for God's judgment to fall, is the possibility that it might be the Lord's will that these people that are doing evil things might actually stop and repent and turn to the Lord, and they could be saved. We find this actually, I think, when we see the message that Jonah was given to preach to the Ninevites. Jonah was told to go to this evil people. And what was the message he was given to preach? It was a very short one. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, that was not a message of grace. That was a message of judgment. And yet, by God's grace, even with that being the message, the Ninevites did repent. And as such, the curse that God had promised was averted. That's, of course, what made Jonah so angry. Jonah assumed that since God had promised that 40 days is going to be destroyed, he couldn't understand the fact that that was actually conditional. Because the people repented, the promised curse was averted. Again, because he can say it better than I can, Christopher Ashe says, quote, All the curses due to a sinner are borne by Jesus Christ if that sinner comes to repentance and faith. So when the Psalms pray for God's judgment to fall, 
those prayers are answered when the judgments fall upon Christ, end quote. Because in a real way, any time that a sinner is converted and comes to Christ, he's no longer an enemy. That enemy has been destroyed because he's been reconciled to God and made into God's friend. Number seven, we have to remember that these prayers are against hardened sinners. We should remember that God's judgment only ever falls on those who are finally, in the end, unrepentant. The psalmists are not praying for God's judgment to fall on their loud neighbor or their annoying coworker or even their unreasonable boss or their irritable and bitter family member. No, they're praying for justice to be done towards someone that has been consistent and persistent in engaging in evil acts towards the people of God, towards the innocent in every case. But still, someone might say, well, shouldn't the psalmist have prayed for their salvation instead of their judgment? Well, that's a good question. And certainly, we should pray for people's salvation. We should pray. If we ever do think we have an enemy, well, yes, pray for their salvation. But a few other things to think about in this regard, a few instances from the New Testament that might, might give us some clarity here, that we realize that whenever there's a situation where justice needs to be done, where there's been a wrong done towards God's people, and we want the right thing to be done, the solution is not necessarily to pray for the conversion of every person in that situation. Think about in the book of Acts, when Peter's been imprisoned, Acts chapter 12, what did the church prayed for? What did they pray for? They prayed that Peter would be released. They didn't pray for the conversion of every person in the prison system. And I think we know this because when Peter was released, they rejoiced that their prayer had been answered because Peter was released. Now, it was a miraculous release. God clearly answered their prayer. But they prayed for a very practical thing to happen, that justice would be done, that a wrong would be righted. And then secondly, this might be an unwise example to give. Sometimes teachers can be unwise in giving extreme examples because extreme examples are sometimes difficult to apply, but here we go. I think it's worth noting that in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, when they realized that Judas was to be the one who was to be the betrayer, Jesus didn't stop and have everyone pray for Judas's conversion. Jesus told Judas, go. Do what you're going to do. I think that's because Jesus realized here is a hardened, impenitent sinner. And perhaps he might come to faith, but it doesn't look like it. And so go. Even if God's judgment is going to come. And then thirdly, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 18 and 19, which shows us um, very uh, graphically when all of God's enemies will finally be destroyed. And again, thinking about Psalm 137, what is the name that is given in Revelation to symbolize all that is evil and opposed to God? Well, Babylon. And so in that context, when Babylon falls, all those things opposed to God, when evil is ultimately destroyed, the church doesn't weep, the church sings for joy. 
and listen to their song. This is Revelation 19, verses 1 through 3. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now that might seem like a strange thing to rejoice about. But someday we will be rejoicing in that, even though it's a hard truth. Because yes, we have to admit that God is glorified in the righteous judgment of unrepentant sinners. And I realize we're tempted to flinch when we hear something like that. It's natural. It's hard. But we need to realize that God's righteous judgment against unrepentant sinners is a necessary precondition in order for the new heaven and the new earth to be ushered in. In fact, when we think about one of the little petitions contained within the Lord's Prayer, which is the way that Jesus has told his people to pray, this little line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think ultimately the only way that that prayer can be answered is upon Jesus' second coming, which is the coming in judgment, when finally God's will of decree and his will of command will perfectly coincide, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now some of those are bowing and confessing by choice, those of us who have come to him already by grace through faith. But there are others who are bowing and confessing not by choice, but because they have to. And in fact, they will then experience eternal judgment. So, number eight. Turn over to Luke chapter 19. We're almost done. Luke 19. As we'll try to finish up trying to ask the question, can Jesus lead us in the use of the imprecatory psalms? Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. And when Jesus approached, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So I find it fascinating that in this particular prophetic lamentation that Jesus is making over Jerusalem, he's making use of language from that most disturbing part of Psalm 137. He's talking about the city being leveled to the ground. He's talking about the fact that even children in Jerusalem will be victims to what would happen eventually when Rome would come in AD 70 and sack Jerusalem. Now, you won't find a footnote that refers you to Psalm 137. It's not a direct quote, but New Testament scholars are are agreed that Jesus is making an allusion here. 
Choose Your Scholar, D.A. Carson, Greg Beal, Daryl Bach, Leon Morris, they all say that Jesus is using parts of Psalm 137 when he's saying this. And so why would Jesus make use of this most disturbing part of Psalm 137? Well, I think it's simply because perhaps that was the one place in the Bible that made sense to Jesus to guide his praying at that moment. It was a very dark moment, but it seemed to me, I think, that there was a psalm for that. In that moment, this was a place where Jesus could go in the psalms to guide his praying. So, more could be said, perhaps more should be said. We're out of time. I guess I'll try to conclude um, by saying this, that I think, yes, with humility and caution, I think we can join with Jesus in praying for the judgment of those that are finally unrepentant and hardened sinners. We may never face a situation in our lives when we think we need to do this, and that's wonderful. But if we do, if we are ever placed in a situation, I think that perhaps the church overseas is far more often placed in these kind of situations where great evil is perpetrated against them. In that case, if we need vocabulary to guide our praying, asking for God to set things right and bring about justice, I think God has been good to us to give us these psalms, not so they should be ignored or crossed out in our Bibles, but so that we could join in praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that one day he may fully and finally triumph over evil and put all of his enemies under his feet. We're going to go ahead and pray, and Dexter can come forward, and you should have in your handout Psalm 145, which we're going to sing, but let's pray. Father, these are difficult things to think about. We praise you for your word and your spirit that you've given us so that we're not without a witness. We recognize um, that your grace um, extends from everlasting to everlasting. And we praise you for that. But we know that there's another side of your covenant, and that includes judgment. And so help us to remember these things and think rightly about them and realize that it's all to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand and You'll see the uh, tune is to uh, the doxology in Psalm 145. Full of compassion is the Lord, and he with graciousness abounds. Moving to anger, he is slow. Great steadfast love in him is found. His mercies cover all he's made. Good is the Lord to all who live. All of your works will praise.
hands to you will praises give. They of your kingdom's glory speak, and of your power they will tell. People may then his great works know, his kingdom's glories that excel. Your kingdom has no end at all. Through all the ages you will reign. All those brought low the Lord lifts up. And those who fall he will sustain. Amen. You can be seated.